Touch them all, Joe. <laughs> Andy Crosby, the golden goal. today's episode of the Backstage Project podcast, we have really one of the greatest and most respected journalists that, that I know in the sports field up here in Canada. He's more toward the end of his career now, so he's not as much of a household name as maybe some others that you're familiar with. But Steve McAllister has continued to make a name for himself by being an incredible journalist and just being a great guy. In today's episode of the Backstage Project podcast, we're going to talk to Steve about a range of topics. Topics that include challenging some of the current status quo in the media business and what it's facing. It's an amazing chat that we had, and I really hope you enjoy it. Steve, you're one of the most accomplished and highly regarded sports media leaders in this country, whether that's print or online. Beyond your impressive career, you've been the steward in Canada of the art of sports media journalism, even while there are forces at play that have changed your craft. For our conversation today, I'd like to focus on a few chapters in your story to understand the perspective you had on what has become the front lines of the survival of sports media journalism. Steve, welcome to the Backstage Project Podcast. Thanks very much, Mark. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you and, and thank you for the very, very kind words. I think Stuart might be going a little bit overboard, but uh, hey, what the hell, I'll take it. Oh, take it, please, please. It's the way I see it anyway. So I want to get straight into this and you have a journalism degree. I see that on your LinkedIn. And I know you're at a stage of your career when LinkedIn isn't as important maybe as it is to people earlier on in their career. But then in you know, 2000, you joined the Globe. And I know, I know you made some stops. It's pretty, pretty great organizations right before then. But fill in those blanks uh, for us. Kind of, you finish your degree, and then you went, and I'm sure you did a bunch of interesting things. Weave the story together for us, kind of before you became you know, that renowned journalist at the Globe. What was going on in your life? Um, yeah, I think I'm, you know, I'm a small town person, Mark. So it's, it's my life's kind of come full circle living in Kincardine now. And um, it's, it's funny. I mean, uh, the week that we're taping this podcast, uh, it's uh, this is my 39th year uh, in the business, which is uh, which is crazy when when I think about it. But, uh, you know, I always wanted to be a sports writer. I, I knew I knew early in high school that uh, I, I was never going to be good enough to be a professional athlete. I mean, I love I love playing baseball and hockey and golf and, and grew up in a small town called Prescott in eastern Ontario. Um, love sports. I uh, used to clip uh, clip newspapers when I was a kid and, and paste them into scrapbooks. So uh, I had a passion early on to be a sports writer and I never really thought about what where it might take me. And I think kind of like your career, Mark, you, you, you never, I mean, I never could have imagined the path that it's taken. And I'm probably part of that last generation of, of mainstream media people who, who had the traditional route to take where you worked in a weekly newspaper for a while and slowly made your way to a daily paper. And uh, I guess what's maybe different with, with my career is that um, there probably aren't that many of us who went from newspaper careers to working in digital online. And of course, uh, going to Yahoo where you and I first met back in, I guess, 2000, what, 2011, 2012, somewhere yeah, around there. Around there. Um, but yeah, it's been a really interesting a career. I've had a chance to work for some national sports organizations. I work for a players union. Um, and now here I am working, uh, working at Bruce nuclear, a, a nuclear generating station in, uh, in Bruce County. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty proud of what I've accomplished. And I, I feel really fortunate that I got to, uh, I got to live out my dream of working in sports journalism. Yeah, listen, it's a dream of so many people still today. And we'll, we'll touch on that as we, you know, get into things uh, during our conversation. And then, I mean, I can't really move on without without thinking about Homer Simpson and what your job is today. So if there's any opportunity for <laughs> Simpsons jokes, as long as you won't get in trouble with, with work, you know, please uh, give us a few uh, so we can at least make light of uh, you working in a power plant. Yeah, well, I, I'm kind of embarrassed, Mark. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen an episode of The Simpsons. So, of course, I, I see the nuclear references once in a while on, on Twitter and that. But I, I honestly, uh, I honestly nev never watched the show. So you, you may, you know, you may have to tell those jokes for me, and I'll, I'll try to, uh, I'll try to fill in the blanks. All right, or maybe some things are better left unsaid. We'll see how <laughs> yeah, it goes. True. <laughs> All right. So in in 2000, 
you join you join the globe you know the internet it's still pretty new I mean really only a handful of years before that and it wasn't much um, but it's really I mean the way I look at it and you're gonna help me and help the audience kind of unpack this but the way I look at it you know it's your baby this this globe sports website you know and thinking back to those times and kind of comparing it to today you know there are terms that we use today certainly it's my world today we talk about agile and UX product management now those kind of words they didn't really exist I mean they might have existed in pieces but not as it relates to like digital product and media it just it just wasn't a thing so Steve looking at that time you know you're the sports editor of the newspaper you're also the editor of globesports.com and thinking about the digital product that was globesports.com, you know, how much control did you actually have over the content that was presented to the audience? And, and did you even really care at that point or were you just happy that it was there? Yeah, it's funny, Mark. In the beginning, and again, I had a little bit of experience when I, when I was at the NHL Players Association in the mid 90s, we actually, uh, we were one of the first sports organizations to get a website up and running and we, we actually didn't beat the NHL by a week or something. And then, that was a real uh, Bob Goodenow really pushed our information technology person and myself to get that site up and running. But at that point, we basically did a player of the day profile and we had a homepage and that, and that was it. When I got to the Globe, I mean, I'd been involved at Tennis Canada. We had a website there. We were trying to do live content around the two tournaments, which are known as the Rogers Cup today in, in Toronto and Montreal. And I'd been, been a really big fan of what Slam Sports had done. and, and um, you know, I was one of those people, I'm sure like you, where I, at the beginning, I would go on Slam every hour because they, Dave Watkins and the people at the Toronto Sun at that time did a really good job getting fresh content up there. Um, the globe was a little bit tougher. You know, 2000 doesn't seem that far, uh, far back, but that was a time where uh, journalists still thought, you know, they wanted to see their byline in the newspaper the next morning. And it was a bit of pulling teeth to get uh, journalists understand that uh, we had a real, we had a chance to, for the first time, really to compete with radio and television. That we could get stories up in real time, and we could have scoops during the day. Uh, and as time progressed, it, it, you know, we we had if we had a scoop, we needed to get it up because there was no uh, no guarantee that it was going to stay until the next morning. One example that comes to mind right away is I I had known Mike Lisko quite well because Mike and I worked at the NHLPA together. And um, I knew that Mike was in the running for the CFL commissioner's job, I think not too long after I started in 2000. Um, and uh, Mike gave me a phone call at the Globe one day and said, hey, Steve, listen, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be named the commissioner of the league. Uh, we're probably going to announce it tomorrow, but I know somebody else has it right now. And and they're probably going to go with it, but I wanted to give you a heads up. And I think it was Dave Naylor, who was our CFL writer at the Globe at the time. I phoned Dave right away and, and, and we got a story up on the website. And that was probably the first scoop that I saw online. But back then there was a real resistance from reporters and columnists to putting on the website what the traditional way was to have the newspaper come out the next day and then you would take all the, all the content from the newspaper and post it online. It's, uh, it's amazing to think back uh, to that world. I mean, I, I was fortunate back then. I wasn't, I wasn't in the media business quite yet. I came in a little later, maybe around 2.0. You were part of point one, and, let, and what yes. you're talking about here, kind of creating 1.0, which, you know, if I remember correctly, it was kind of pre-monetization even for the most part. And it really was, and no, no better person than you to, to be in a leadership position at that time. It really was, how do we take a, a business model that we had in print and bring that online? And as we all know to this day, the internet still struggles uh, to overcome you know, the legacy of, of its monetization model. But we'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into that a little later, unless you want to comment on it now. Well, just uh, again, in my early days at the Globe, uh, Mark, that's when uh, Bell Media took over part uh, ownership of the Globe. And, and I was involved along with Neil Campbell, who was my who was a sports at the Globe Mail before I, I went there. And, and Neil, again, Neil deserves all the credit. I, as far as I'm concerned, the Globe Mail was the best sports department in the country back uh, in the late 90s and, and through most of the 2000, early 2000s. And that's a tribute to Neil and the staff that he put together and, and the philosophy he put together. Neil was also 
and, and you work with Neil at the at the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, Mark. I I think Neil's one of the the, the most brilliant sports journalists and a guy who's so completely underappreciated for for what uh, for how good he was in that space for so long. Neil and I were involved with the TSM Max project that when Michael Sabia was in charge of Bell, and you remember when con- convergence was probably one of the few the first buzzwords in in uh, in digital, and. Uh, we, we had a strategy where we thought we could charge for hockey content uh, using the Globe and Mail and, and TSN and Sympatico was part of that at the time. And we, we knew we were doomed. Uh, we had a meeting one day and uh, the plan is that we were going to hire reporters in, in the different cities across Canada to cover NHL teams. And uh, we, we were going to put our all our best hockey content, including Bob McKenzie and the other insiders behind the paywall. And Keith Capelli, who was uh, the president of TSN at the time, came into came into the meeting and said that they would ne- basically, over my dead body, would be putting Bob McKenzie behind the paywall. <clears throat> Neil and I knew that day that that TSN Max was doomed to fail because you couldn't, uh, you know, if if if, uh, if Bob McKenzie's content was going to be for free, you you weren't really going to have a great chance to monetize monetize TSN Max and. Sure enough, about six months after we'd hired all these people, we we, we let them go, and, and TSN Max was, you know, kind of drifted off to sea not too quite long afterwards. Yeah, there was that was a lot that that you just said there, actually. So uh, let's take some time. Let's take some time and get into it. I, I knew we were going to have a great conversation today. It wasn't going to be a typical Q and A, just because our paths, at least what we're passionate about with digital sports media. You know, cross so well especially a few years ago when you were at yahoo and i was at tsn so first thing i remember so i worked very close with mike day obviously at tsn and i remember him telling me the stories of tsn max and uh, i got a chance to relive that with the launch of the tsn radio stations and um and trying to and creating what basically was the what was the original vision for tsn max without using a word like that where we had all of these local hubs, very similar to the, obviously the ESPN model, given given ESPN's ownership in in, you know, in TSN and and Bell Media Specialty, uh, we we needed that that kind of credibility from the U.S. to make that happen. But you know, the, what the other part that you're talking about, which is which is Keith Pelly, and I think I've already talked about this on, on an earlier episode, perhaps when when I was speaking to Rick Chisholm. Keith has a way of being incredibly decisive to the point where you can't say anything. Um, in response to that, uh, and I always believed that he wanted you to say something, but few people had the courage. H- how did you perceive Keith at the time? And I'm assuming you weren't directly working for Keith; you were part of another division. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Mike was part of that TSN Max group, and and so we had Mike and, and Bart Yabsley was part of the team at the time, and and uh, we had a couple of people from Bell, and I, I believe John McClarty was working at Sympatico at that time, and John was, uh, I think, involved uh, with that group as well, and you know, Keith carried a, a big stick, and um, you know, I think. Uh, and knowing Neil as well as I do, Neil's someone who wouldn't be afraid to express his opinion. So I'm sure we did, you know, we did make it known to Keith that, you know, having all these people that were established journalists, I mean, Matt Sakaris was somebody who we hired who's now doing sports talk radio in Vancouver. We, we hired a good group of people, but uh, again, how could do we, how could we ask people to pay? I think we were looking at five bucks a month was the, was the model. Um, but how could we expect people to pay for content when they could get, you know, Bob McKenzie, who back then was the dean of, of hockey, um, hockey media people. If, if Bob was going to be on the free site, uh, how could you expect people to pay five bucks for, for other NHL content? And, um, and uh, my feeling was, Mark, and again, you can tell me if, if I'm right or wrong, but I, the feeling was at that time uh, is that, for TSN Digital was, you know, was an afterthought. Um, it was kind of there to promote the television shows, and and uh, I just didn't think there was nearly the investment that should have uh, should have or could have been made in digital, and that they were, you know, they were sitting on some un- untapped potential there, uh, not just from a content standpoint, but I, I also believe from a monetary standpoint. Yeah, no, you're you, you've got a great a great way of, of articulating it you're obviously an amazing journalist um i uh, I, I cannot articulate it as well as you do i mean um you know i i have such high regard for all the people that i worked with at tsn um 
the the part of my my time there and i'll separate kind of the olympic time which was just a different animal more the ctv and, and rogers media world versus the tsn time when it was very clearly bell media the issues that i uncovered and this dates back to let's say the fall of 2012 when i started as i began to learn how how time had unfolded and and it took years to to really uh, reverse engineer what I what I was now inheriting in 2012 and being asked uh, to to basically transform, like take what had happened and, and I'm not going to talk a lot about this because this podcast is about you, but I, but I will tell the audience because uh, it's just so topical and relevant that th the world that I came into in 2012, which was at an amazing time, we had just done the Olympics, we had raised the technology bar to a level that you know, still hasn't even really been reached in. Canada with with digital, the world that I that I came into, uh, you know, and Adam Ashton told me a little bit about this a few years ago, where when we were both out of Bell Media and we were catching up, he was telling me about a meeting that happened almost 20 years ago, at the very beginning of the digital business structure, at I believe it was I guess, I guess it was CTV at the time they didn't hadn't acquired Chum yet, TSN was rather new, in the portfolio of properties. Um, under under this new CTV, Bell Globe Media business, but it was it was determined that digital was going to stand on its own, that it was going to do its own marketing, it was going to do its own sales, and and that's when the walls went up, and those walls really separated the broadcast from the digital, right? And it really wasn't until we did the London Olympics because I don't think we achieved this in the Vancouver Olympics. It wasn't until the London Olympics when I got to work with Rick Chisholm and I got to work with you know. People like Don Young and and Gord Cutler, and with Adam's leadership kind of behind him, behind all of us, um, where we began to tear down those walls. And and while we couldn't solve all the problems, and and Bell after they acquired CTV, you know, created a whole bunch of you know other ways to get the job done based on synergies and economies of scale, which they do a great job in that regard. But we began to say, and this only really happened after I left TSN. Where I took the entire what could we call them web producers, Steve, homepage producers, kind of in our business. Right. I took all those people and I walked into Mark Millier's office. This is a few months before I knew I was leaving to do to do my own venture, and I said, Mark, let's make you the head of content. Why do I have all these content people reporting to me? And this is at a time when there was contraction, right? This is Facebook was just really monetizing itself, and I think we're going to talk about that a little later in one of my questions, and. The revenue, and I can't speak to the recent revenue, but the revenue on that run, kind of from the beginning, when when you're talking about it in the post TSN Max era, that revenue was at its absolute height. Traffic was at its absolute height, and and I'm and I was like, we got to do this better because Bell was already contracting on staffing, let alone budgets, and I needed to save some jobs. And so it took a while, and it took you know, Ken Bolden's help. But uh, within about six or nine months of me leaving, the, all of those digital, we'll call them content people, did move over. And since that time, it's the, that's the same thing that has happened um, you know, specifically in the CTV news side as well. There was this separation of digital product uh, or product management, a term I used already, and digital content. And that content is really married with the broadcast because does it doesn't need to be that redundancy in a business which is really TV driven. And I think we'll talk about this a little more later, but I wanted to get a few of those ideas. Yeah, I just, yeah, I just want to chime in on that too, Mark, because you make such a great point. And it was one of, uh, you know, back then it was, I would have conversations with people in the, in the digital world. I mean, Mike being among them. And um, I would hear these conversations where somebody, the digital side wants to send someone to to New York to do a feature on a Blue Jays picture. And, and, um, TV would say, well, you have to, you you know, you can't use our budget for that. You, that's got to come out of the digital budget. And even back then, I thought, geez, that's, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why, why wouldn't you, why, why isn't this a combined content budget where, you know, you can send Michael Whalen, when Michael was in Montreal, send Michael Whalen in New York for a weekend to do some Blue Jays or Expos coverage, and then you take some of that content he's done and slice it up and make it available for digital. I think that's one of the things that Neil did so well around 2010 Vancouver and, and, and you people is that recognizing that you could have a Stephen Brunt who was still with the Globe at that time. Uh, you could take a guy like Brunt, do an interview, uh, turn into a newspaper column, get some video content out of it, and, and really, really work those synergies 
Uh, but that uh, that was a long that was a long time coming. I feel. I agree with you, and I'm, and I'm you know what, with all of what I've accomplished since that time, um, you know, when I walked into you know the consortium in the in around this time in 2008, I was certainly a sports guy, but I never worked in sports. I was more of a technology project leadership guy. And uh, I got to give the credit to Alon, Alon Markovich. And, and I know he comes up on the podcast a lot, and that's rightfully so. Working for Keith at that time at the consortium, um, Keith surrounded himself with unbelievable A players. And not just people who are good at their trades, but people who are willing to push boundaries. And we know that digital was an area that everyone was terrified of because they really didn't understand it. And that's something that really does follow through to this day in the media business. But Alon was the one who had the vision of integrating the content from the globe. Now you, and I was going to chat about this later, but you, you know, you bailed and you went to Yahoo, but we'll, we'll, we'll right. deal with that a little later. So, you know, we had Neil, we had, you had Stephen Brunt, we had Michael Grange and you just look at Grange and what's happened to his career in the aftermath of that and Brunt, they go over to Rogers, they're, they're covering everything. I mean, Grange is one of the top guys on, on the NBA broadcast for, yeah, Jeff, Jeff Blair, you know, Jeff Blair is yeah. another guy who made that transition uh, over to, to radio and, and digital. And again, I, I think Neil, uh, I really believe Mark that Neil was a pioneer there too. I mean, when we re revamped uh, the Globe and Mail sports site in 2006, uh, Neil was the guy who pushed really hard. He could see that analytics were starting to creep into professional sports, especially hockey. And Neil was the guy who suggested that we hire, um, we hired someone who could who could write analytics column for us, and again, it was still early. And and uh, I think the struggle that that time was finding people who could explain analytics to hockey fans like you and I, who had never really you know had never heard of Fenwick or Corsi and and didn't really care about analytics. And we hired a guy, I think it was an actuary named Alan Ryder, who had his own blog doing analytics. And James Myrtle was another guy. I mean, James, uh, you know, James was a hockey blogger who we hired at the Globe and, and encouraged James to do some writing on our digital side. And uh, James has turned into, uh, you know, one of the one of the brightest and, and best hockey writers out there today. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about what James is up to, I'm sure, a little later in our chat today. So the Globe and Mail. And you know, from, from an outsider's point of view, I mean, that, that paper is like, what, 150 plus years old equivalent of what like the wall street journal in canada mm -hmm. new york times new york times like right right up there and similar to both of those publications that uh, that i've witnessed certain uh, in, in my career in media the innovation that has come out of the globe and mail from a from a digital platform technology point of view but what i saw was an unbelievable amount of innovation and and i wanted to get to kind of the heart of it is that because i know the business model is not the greatest at least today we do um, but is that a perk of working for a paper that's owned by you know, Canada's wealthiest family, or, or how would you describe, you know, the digital culture when you were at the Globe at that time? Yeah, I think you have to give Philip Crawley, the Globe's publisher, a lot of credit. I and mean, Philip was a lot, was the guy who drove a lot of that innovation. Um, we went through a, a phase when I was there, uh, I forget what the name of it was called. It was like, Reima I think it was Reimagination. And uh, Philip had, uh, we had teams of people from different departments across the newspaper set up and reimagine the way we did business. And it was everything from how we structured the newsroom to how we did on online content. Yeah, I, I think the Globe market, the Globe has really, really tried to make the business model work. And I, I think they've, they've been very innovative. I mean, things like, you know, charging, setting up Globe Investor to be a separate subscription model, following the same kind of models for, for coverage of the cannabis industry when, when it was first, you know, I mean, cannabis to me is a lot like the high tech industry. It could, you know, had this incredible honeymoon period. And I think we're still wondering where, where it's going to end up. But the Globe jumped on that horse early and, and set up uh, something where people would pay a subscription to get cannabis content. So I think the Globe's been very, very innovative. And, and for me, Philip gets a lot of the credit for that. Yeah, thanks for putting in the context and attaching a name to it. The names are really important to understand you know, where that innovation came from. And leadership Leadership is certainly at, at the center of it. Also, since, since we are talking about the Globe and subscriptions, I think we also have to give some credit to Alon, who who was at the Globe when they launched the subscription service. Right, um, takes takes yeah. vision. And even uh, again, uh, you know, Neil Campbell, uh, Mark. I think there was a period there where where Neil went and visited uh, Philip sent Neil to visit papers around the world to see how their newsrooms were set up and and how how they were doing 
uh, digital content. Neil, who just uh, who just retired, I think six or eight months ago after just an incredible career. Neil, after running Canadian Press for a while, came back to the Globe and he was he was doing a lot of work to, to monetize content. So, uh, you know, I think Neil was one of those guys to a, a, a rare journalist who, you know, a lot, a lot of journalists, we know how to spend money, but we don't really know how to make money. Uh, Neil was a guy who was always thinking about the dollar then, and understood that if you wanted to have a, a million dollar travel budget for the sports department, you had to find a way to have some revenue coming in to pay for that budget. And I'll, I'll defend you a little bit. A lot of TV producers and digital product guys like me, we know how to spend money. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you touched on something earlier. I want to come back to it. So you and I, we came really close to working on the 2010 Olympics, um, you know, but you defected to Yahoo. You, you moved at a time when digital was really at a turning point. I already referenced kind of the Facebook part of this, but, but when I say turning point, I mean, and I don't mean the TSM turning point, but I always love that expression. Um, that was actually the name we originally put forth for Bar Down. Uh, just uh, if there's a trivia question that comes out of this podcast. Yeah. Originally, it was a TSM turning point, but hey, Bar Down is a great name. And all the credits of Dave Cricks, who we've had previously uh, on the uh, Backstage uh, Project podcast. So by 2013, Facebook is, you know, is basically stealing our audiences. And when I say stealing our audiences, I mean people are getting to our websites through Facebook. And Facebook has all this data about them that none of us have. Uh, you know, some media organizations began to, began to get this data, but I know at Bell Media, we certainly were not at that point getting the data, but our advertisers wanted it. And, you know, maybe, maybe if we have Jordan Banks ever on the podcast, who's now the president of Rogers uh, Sports and Media, we, we can ask him about what, what that was all about. But, you know, when I think about that time, I knew of you. We hadn't met yet. I think we, we met a few years later, like you mentioned, when I joined TSN. And I specifically remember we were talking about distribution of TSN content. I, and then it was you and it was Martin Calgill and I, it was just the three of us. It was an off the books meeting, but it happened to be at your beautiful office on the waterfront in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> and no one really knew me. So it was, I was basically invisible as far as anyone else was concerned. And, and you were, you guys were surprised. And, and we might've been talking about the Women's World Cup in 2015. I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but you guys were surprised because no one ever wanted to talk to you. They saw you as the enemy. And I didn't realize that at the time, but I came to realize that over the course of time, things like, you know, the Olympics and Puck Daddy. And when I talk about the Olympics and Puck Daddy, you know, for those of you who don't know, Puck Daddy, basically the, it's uh, Yahoo's equivalent of NHL coverage. And, and it's something that uh, was an amazing, amazing column. You could talk a little bit about what happened to Greg after that. But, you know, you guys, you're not Canadian. I mean, you might have a Canadian right. office and you might pay taxes, yep. but you're not, you're not Canadian. But you're doing, Yahoo's doing these deals with they're doing deals in other countries, other territories, a lot of them out of the US where Yahoo is based, deals with NBC, deals with Google, YouTube, you know, as, Yah as Yahoo gave up their search to Google a few years later. And you guys had the content at a scale that no Canadian sports broadcaster had, or really could ever attain or budget for with any business plan on an audience of only about 30 plus million. I'm going back a few years, the country was smaller. But you didn't have any of the rights. We had the rights. And when I say right. we, I mean us, Rogers, doesn't really matter who it was, but it was never Yahoo. I know you had some rights and you streamed some football games, but that was, that was different. And so from my perspective, you know, kind of being honest about it, it's, uh, you know, it did bother me. <laughs> it did bother <laughs> me at the time about how, and I'll use a word like flippant, how flippant Yahoo was with respecting our rights and, and whether it was true or not. I mean, I want to point to an example that I remember, and I can't remember if I hit you up on this at the time, <laughs> but I researched it for our chat today. So it's the 2013 NHL season, December 9th, 2013 to be exact. I remember where I was. I was putting my son to bed. He's probably you know, three and a half years old at that time, my youngest. James Neal of the Penguins at the time, knees Brad Marchand of the Bruins in the head. Ends up getting five game suspension. You guys grabbed the video off of YouTube. You right. embedded it in the Puck Daddy story. <laughs> yep. And this is even before TSN is flinching. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm losing my mind knowing that my wife would actually kill me if I left my son. <laughs> yes. I'm losing my mind and blasting all, whoever was running, you know, the, the homepage producer at that moment. I won't name names because that's not fair. <laughs> I was like, why aren't we showing this? We are a rights holder. We are paying for this content. And it was good defense at the time, you know, 
well, that player, you know, might be seriously hurt. And, and that was the point where I realized what the problem was. The problem was nobody understood the business of digital. We were willing to give it away because of some code that someone had well before me in it at an era when, yeah, I mean, if this was on the CBC television broadcast, maybe they would have held that. And if you were on TV, maybe you would have held that. But in the era of whoever breaks it gets the views. And this got, this got millions of views. I remember back then, because Ro uh, Rogers had already been awarded just days before the, um, for, for the NHL, the national broadcast rights. And I remember I, I hit up Corby Fine and Perry Bell. Both, both guys who I know very well. Yes. And I just, I showed them the YouTube clip, views, and I showed them your piece. And I'm like, guys, this is what you have to worry about. This is what you're up against with monetizing, you know, the $5.2 billion deal. It's that you don't own this story. And something that maybe, maybe you'll come clean with me here, Steve, because we're being so honest and neither one of us work for any of these companies anymore. But didn't you have basically a, a bunch of uh, technicians, video producers, just cutting clips from NHL games for, and posting them to rando YouTube accounts. I think, uh, you know, actually to me, uh, Mark, that was the strength of the blogs. I mean, yeah, Yahoo, um, Yahoo sports was built on the back of, of three things, a uh, uh, fantasy sports, you know, Dave Morgan, who was the first sports editor in chief going out and hiring some of the best beat writers and columnists in the United States. And then the third thing was setting up these uh, these sports blogs, and in the case of the blogs, and Puck Daddy's the best example is Greg uh, Greg Wyshynski put together a group of um, three or four writers, and they would watch games in the evening. And as soon as they saw the Brad Marchand knee, they would find that video clip, uh, embed it in a posting, and get it up. And uh, like to, to be completely honest, we didn't have video back then. We didn't have video people. In fact, I think the, I think the Yahoo Sports, uh, the Canadian operation now is actually more, much more slanted video than it was during my time running the Canadian sports operation. But that was the bloggers take, find those clips on YouTube or wherever they could find them. And yeah, I remember we had, uh, we had a lot of, a lot of back and forth with, with TSN and, and, uh, and later Rogers and, it's really the reason why the NBC deal came with Yahoo in the U.S. because um, NBC got tired of Yahoo kicking its ass on its Olympic coverage on digital. And Yahoo really needed to have those video clips because it just wasn't the same content to just have some writing and maybe have a GIF or a photo. And both parties, it was kind of an un uneasy alliance, but they both realized they kind of they needed each other. And that's why that NBC um, Yahoo deal happened. But yeah, no, that that's that's uh, totally a tribute to the bloggers identifying content, knowing that 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 was a content uh, kind of content that would draw a large audience, and and having the technical uh, efficiencies to to grab that content and post it. So I'm going to take that as a non-answer, but a very polite <laughs> one. Um, that's okay. That's okay. So to get us back on track a bit, so what was it like to work for Yahoo? Well, they were on this wild leadership and, and ownership ride. And just to frame it for the audience, I believe, Steve, and especially you know, when it came maybe toward the end of your tenure at Yahoo in particular, you know, your editorial team was rather small. I remember us chatting about this over the years. Um, but you were generally, you were still the number one property in the land. And I know some of that was a legacy from Yahoo email. And I know some of that is because of fantasy. Mm -hmm. But those, those things aside, I mean, you're a journalist. What is going on and how do you feel about what's going on? You can share whatever you feel like sharing. So maybe tell us a little bit about what it was like for you. Yeah, it, it was a roller coaster ride, Mark. The, the one thing I will say is it gave me, um, it gave me a second life as a, as a sports uh, journalist and, and more as a sports editor. I mean, I had, uh, in 2009, or I'd stepped down as sports editor, I, I was tell the analogy it's like coaching a hockey team I kind of felt like the the players in this case the writers had gotten a little bit tired of me and I and I probably had gotten a little tired of some of the writers and there'd been some dynamics change at the globe when I I just uh I went to Neil one day and said hey Neil I think you know I've had a pretty good run here and it's but it's time to for me to step down and I saw what was going on in the digital world and I wanted to I wanted to learn how to program a website because I thought it might come in handy at some point down the road and 
you know, sure enough, a year later, after I'd been doing the, the kind of Monday to Friday digital sports programming job, um, Yahoo was looking for initially just, just someone to, to put up content. And after I met with, uh, with some of the people at the Canadian office, they decided they were going to offer me a, a managing editor's position and, and give me the resources to hire a staff. Uh, so I, I'm really proud of what we did at, at Yahoo while I was there. Because as you said, Mark, I, I had a chance to, we, we did some really good sports journalism. I, I went out and hired Saya Sapurji, who had covered a lot of junior hockey for the Toronto Star. And, and we, we did some award-winning coverage of of junior hockey and, and you know, kind of gave junior hockey a platform that it didn't really have with other media outlets across the country. Um, extremely fortunate to be able to, to take advantage of the of the US bloggers. And I, I learned a lot I learned a lot working with Greg Wyshynski. I think again, I think Greg's a guy who doesn't get enough uh, nearly enough credit as a hockey journalist. And uh, you know, I'm not surprised that he's gone on to to, to ESPN and having such a successful career now as, as, as still a writer, but also doing podcasting and doing radio and doing television. Greg, Greg's a superstar in, in my book. Um, but yeah, it was crazy time. Like, uh, you know, Marissa Meyer, we spent a billion dollars to buy Tumblr and then, and then forced Tumblr onto the editorial team as a publishing platform, which was, a, which was ridiculous. It was, uh, you know, it was so non-friendly to do digital journalism that that was a real source of frustration. And um, I went through probably at least three rounds of layoffs where I wasn't told, uh, I wasn't told that I was losing people in my department until the morning where they got called into the office and were let go. And uh, I think we went through four, at least four, if not five CEOs while I was there. But, but from a pure, you know, from a pure journalism and content standpoint, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I would say for 90% of my time at Yahoo, I'm extremely proud of what we did there. So as far as I'm concerned, I mean, you guys did a great job. We were, if we were anything, we, we, we were envious. We, we were really envious, but, um, but lots of stuff that we did, we were proud of as well. I'm, I'm glad yeah, and we, we can reminisce and, yeah. and, uh, and we tried, on the yeah. And we tried some stuff, Mark. Like I remember back then, it, you know, some of the conversations that you and I had were about, you know, could we take some TSN content and show it on Yahoo uh, platforms to, not not just for Yahoo, but to help TSN as well. And I, when I first got the Yahoo in 2009, I think we actually uh, struck a deal with Sean Redman, and we were showing uh, we were showing some highlights or clips from the World Junior Tournament. And my first year at Yahoo, we were showing a Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday nights on our homepage, uh, which is you know a little bit revolutionary and and unique. And and again, we were just trying to trying to bring more awareness to Hockey Night in Canada, and our homepage maybe present a different audience than just a traditional sports fan. So that that's one thing I enjoyed about Yahoo too, is we weren't afraid to try things. And then the other thing was is that we um, by the time I had left, I think Yahoo. Uh, like we, we were sending 35, 50 people to the Olympics at, at a time where media organizations were starting to starting to scale back how many people they were sending. A lot of lot of perks working for a global a global news organization. Absolutely. You know, like, like you did. Let's let's discuss the state of things today. At least looking back to the end maybe of 2019. T difficult for us to to use today in 2020 as an example. So looking back just a few months ago, you know. We've seen a tidal wave of layoffs in Canadian sports media. You already mentioned a little bit of what you experienced at Yahoo, and that was back four or five years ago. You know, we're taking we're taking hits across the board. Like the biggest the biggest place is Yahoo, which we know got decimated um, recently in Canada. Vice, we've heard of even Sportsnet. You know, the Athletic has become over the last few years a little bit of a savior. But otherwise, when we kind of look outside of Toronto and English coverage and then Montreal and French coverage. You know, there's really not much sports coverage in Canada when you get into the other markets, really beyond the Canadian press. And for those other markets, the, the quality of what CP is putting out there, that local coverage, it's inconsistent. Uh, it seems to be more about the volume of content they're putting out there than the quality of the content. Um, also, rights around images to, to create a package doesn't seem to be something that that Canadian press cares so much about anymore. You know, I'm curious for your perspective on all this because you know it, you know the ecosystem so well. You know, I'm curious about what has changed in general when we look at the business today. 
and I'm happy to help you with uh, coming up with a, an answer for this as we debate it. But, you know, is it the audience? Have they changed? We know they're going other places, that's for sure. Uh, is it the business of, of sports media, journalism? You know, what, what's your first take when I, when I ask a question like this? I think it's a it's a combination, Mark. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking about uh, this this afternoon as I was preparing to, to to do this interview, and I look at my kids, and I mean, I grew up in a house where my my mother and father read the newspaper. As as I mentioned uh, off the top of this podcast, I used to clip newspapers and put them in a scrapbook. And uh, you know, my son was up from Toronto last weekend, and he's sitting on the couch and he's on his phone the entire weekend. And, you know, again, looking at Instagram and checking out Twitter and, and uh, TikTok now. And so that audience has changed a lot. Uh, but also part of me wonders, have, have, you know, we, have we really given our kids a chance to appreciate traditional media or, or journalism? Um, because the business seems to be in survival mode. And, and as I always say, it's like if I walk into a grocery store and they're serving brown heads of lettuce in the produce section, I'm not going to buy that lettuce. And if you're a media outlet, your your product is your content. It's, if you're a newspaper, it's good journalism. And so if you're cutting constantly cutting journalists, and and you know we've seen where papers where they've cut they've cut photographers, they've cut copy editors, they've cut graphic designers. You know, it's almost like walking into a clothes store and getting a suit that's got holes in it. So I, I wonder, I wonder about that. And then the other thing is, as you know, Mark, there are just so many, uh, so many darn places to get to get content now. I mean, you can get, uh, you know, you can get it on Facebook, you can get it on Twitter. Uh, people produce their own content. Uh, there's a, a, a lot more platforms. I still think there's a, a place for journalism. And and again, living in a in a rural community as I do now in Kincard, and I, I see right now the value of local journalism. I mean, we, we're in the midst of a pandemic, and uh, I see our local media giving us the latest updates from the health unit and reinforcing some of those key messages on how to stay safe and healthy and, and uh, you know, helping out local businesses who are, are trying to survive. And at the at the base of it, Mark, we we need we need to have journalism uh, at all levels uh, to keep people accountable. I mean, I, it it's, it really scares the hell out of me to think about a world where we no longer have newspapers or, or news journalists, and we we have council meetings that don't get covered, and and parliament doesn't get covered, and we see what's going on in the in the U.S. right now, and and that's what really frightens me. What uh, what is going to help hold our leaders and people of power accountable 25 years down the road? Steve, you make such great points there. I'm not even going to attempt to, to comment. Uh, you, you clearly understand the landscape really well. You didn't even reference the CRTC in the midst of that, which is, which is fine. We have spoken uh, on the, the Backstage Project podcast to the odd cbc -er, or they were at CBC at one time or another. That is another interesting organization. I absolutely support protecting our credibility to our citizens the, this during the time that we're going through now this this concept of local i find myself doing exactly the same thing that you're doing because it's every community um, whether that's in a rural area like you are or just just on the tip outside of toronto where i am you know, every community is unique as they go through this and if there's no media to tell us how to be safe or where to go and we're limited to you know google search or facebook or instagram you know we're in trouble because those platforms um it's very expensive to reach your audience there organic reach is rather is rather dead and that that's what we have to be grappling with and government has to grapple with it i am happy that we live in canada where although we are a little too protectionist in what we do i i believe that the best interests of our citizens are are at the top of mind yeah for the for the newspaper industry mark like i really hope they figure it out when i talk about newspapers i talk about on online news too i mean i i you know i really i really hope the post media can figure it out and i really hope that the star can figure it out and and i hope this is just a blip and you know kind of like 250 or 300 years ago whenever newspapers first came along and one day finally someone came up with the idea of doing classified ads and and then someone came up with the idea of doing display advertising that we're going to have a day where where people again are going to find the new way to, to monetize newspapers so that we can have you know city hall is covered robustly again and 
if you live in a small community like whether it's Thornhill or, or King Carden, where you're reading the stories about local athletes who are getting college scholarships, who are going to play junior hockey or going to the Olympics, um, I, I I still remain optimistic that we'll we'll get there. It's going to take a while, but we'll we'll get there. And I, I and I think I think for the for the uh, well-being of our, our country, we do need to get there. Well, time will tell. Time will tell. And certainly, the when you look at places like the UK, I mean, they've been able to um, they've been able to keep keep it going with uh, taxing the citizens a little more on their access to things like television. But we'll see where it goes. We're already we're already overtaxed, so it's tough. Everyone and everyone right now wants a handout. We won't yes. even talk about that and how it affects the business of sports. We just don't know enough to talk about it today. But let's uh, let's close with a few questions that we're asking you know, every every guest uh, on the podcast. And um, I didn't prepare you for these, so you'll you'll just you'll just say what what comes to mind. The rapid round. It is well. It's up to you. It's okay. up to you. Okay. So if you had to pick one moment, one moment in your career, what would be the most memorable? Uh, boy. Um... I'll, I'll say the the Blue Jays first World Series uh, again. If, uh, to be to be in Atlanta in 1992 and, and see uh, Mike Timlin throw that ball to Joe Carter for the final out, and and be in the clubhouse to see Pat Gillick and Paul Beeston and Cito Gaston being presented with that championship trophy for for a kid from a town of 5,000 people in Eastern Ontario. That was pretty neat to uh, to be part of that so you know in, in a career where i've had an opportunity to do a lot of pretty cool things that that certainly is at the top i'm jealous of that i'll just say it i was in a bar <laughs> djing some kind of wedding maybe mm -hmm. uh in in guelph i i was a little younger than, than maybe you were at the time but uh but it was quite a moment it was quite a moment so thanks for sharing that one and then thinking about thinking about sports media journalism today and, and people, and we, we hope there are people who still want to be sports media journalists. And what advice would, would you give them about, about working in the space today? Yeah, listen, one thing I, was, I want to say, Mark, is there are really, there are a ton of talented young journalists today. And uh, the one advantage I would say they have that, that we didn't have in, when I was getting in the business is that you, you can uh, fine tune your craft now through through different through different channels. Whether you're writing a blog or you're posting articles on LinkedIn, or you know you you can do your own YouTube videos. And and uh, you know I, I did some teaching at the College of Sports Media, and I taught at Ryerson for a semester. And uh, it's it's been neat to see some of these young kids come out of school who are doing really dynamite stuff. So I, I think they're there is a way to cut your teeth that is different than it was 39 years ago when I came up here to Kincardine and worked at the Kincardine News, a, a weekly newspaper. Uh, there are different ways to, to, you know, cut your teeth and get some experience now. And so, you know, the fact that you can't get a job right now with a newspaper or a television station or a radio station or a digital outlet, um, that doesn't mean that you can't be out there talking to people and, and building a portfolio and getting some experience. That's great advice, Steve. That's that's exactly the way that we've heard from other other folks of your pedigree when when they're giving advice uh, to to this generation. And yeah. uh, you know, I, I do some teaching still, and uh, I'm lucky. I mean, I get to teach social media tactics to MBA students, and um, none of them are going to be sports media journalists. But I encourage them all to have a personal brand, stand for something. Hopefully, it's yeah. something good. Yeah, and and you know what, Mark, talk to people. I think guys like you and I, there's a lot of lot of people out there, and, and there's access now through LinkedIn and Twitter, and and uh, I think most of us, like I, you know, I, I'm really really happy to talk to young people and, and give them some advice or listen listen to what uh, what they're trying to get get done. Uh, and again, I would say that we didn't have that access. We didn't have LinkedIn back in 1981 when I started in the, in the industry. So uh, reach out, to, reach out to old parts like you, you and I, and, and the other people on this podcast, and, and and pick their brains. That's great advice, and thanks for for tying everyone together. And not everyone is an old fart, but we'll, we'll, I won't get uh, I won't get sidetracked by that. <laughs> you certainly look uh, pretty fit. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. Everyone has to check out uh, his uh, his LinkedIn profile for the, for the for the best photo because since this is an audio podcast, so our final question for you, Steve. You know, looking back to those early days of your career, what what do you wish uh, you knew then that that you know now? Um, 
I, I wish I'd been a little bit better read, Mark. I, I kind of feel like, um, you know, it's, it's funny. When I took over the baseball beat at Canadian Press in 1992 from Tom Maloney, I, I didn't want to cover salary caps. I didn't want to cover collective bargaining. I didn't want to, you know, I had no, no idea about franchise values. And it really wasn't until I went to work for Bob Goodnow at the NHLPA in 1994, right before the lockout, that I, I, you know, Bob insisted that I read a lot. So I learned about franchise values and I, I learned how to uh, educate myself about the collective bargaining agreement and, and how that all, you know, sports and business tie, ties in. And, and as I often tell journalism students now, you can't work in sports if you don't understand how the business of sports works. And, and I know that, you know, that has a huge overlap in the, in the career path that you've, uh, you've taken. So I, I wish I'd been, been a little bit better, better read and, and taken more of an interest in, in business early. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that that's a major takeaway. It's just uh, I, I wish I'd educated myself a little bit more in my early years. Yeah, listen, thanks for that. I know it's a it, it is a tough question, and uh, I'm going to let you off the hook because uh, I think being a sports guy and having a passion for the game, especially at that time, that was way more important than the business. You know, as we've found out, you know, really over the last few months, but certainly over the last number of years as franchise valuations have gone up and uh, player salaries have gone up and revenue for very few organizations have really skyrocketed. The business of sports is, uh, is, a, tough, is a tough business and it's not for everyone. And um, when you look at those owners, many owners are already extraordinarily wealthy. And the, the sports team is more of a, a trophy uh, than, uh, that, that allows them to justify their passion. But Steve, this has been awesome uh, reconnecting with you. Uh, since you moved out to Concordia, we just have not seen each other very much. It's also good to see you. And I obviously follow you constantly uh, on, on LinkedIn. And um, I hope to see a post very soon that invites uh, all those young people to hit you up, uh, to ask your opinion of, of what they should be doing. Because that, that's an unbelievable offer that, that you put on the table here. Yeah, well, listen. Thank, thank you, Mark. It's, it's. I'm. I feel really honored that you've asked me to be uh, on the podcast, just because of the caliber of people that you've you've got appearing. And uh, again, I think one of the great things that came out of my career at Yahoo is I. I again, it was almost like a second chance to meet some really good people. I mean, I. I think of you and uh, and, and Sherry Bradish, our, our friend at Ryerson University, and of course Martin Calgill, who did business development at Yahoo. And and through through you, I've met a lot of really good people uh, in the industry as well. So I, uh, like I said, I, I really value our friendship, and uh, it, it's really is a privilege to be with you here on the podcast. Well, thanks a lot, Steve. Those are some very kind words, and they mean a lot to me. So you be well, and I do look forward to seeing you soon. Yes, we will. We will have a beer at some point before 2020 is over, Mark, guaranteed. I love it. We'll book it. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.